Welcome everyone to episode 41 of the Brandon Adams podcast. I have with me Twitter personality and financial Twitter star, Doomberg. Doomberg, how's it going today? Brandon, it's going great. Great pleasure to be here. Looking forward to the discussion. So you, you have created the Doomberg brand from scratch and you've ascended in nine short months to uh, 40K plus Twitter followers and one of the most popular economic substacks out there. Uh, was this plan long in the making or, or did it just gather momentum and you, and you kept rolling? Yeah, so we're a, we're a small team and we, um, as background, we, we sort of had our own consulting business, which as we, we uh, revealed on another podcast, took it, took it in the knees on, uh, during COVID, like many small businesses know COVID crushed many small businesses and it certainly crushed ours. We lost, I think 85% of our revenue. Most of our revenue was from public companies and, uh, consulting services are variable costs that are quick to shut off during times of crisis. And, and we had a pretty concentrated customer, uh, set. And, and so, um, so we had to reinvent ourselves. And one of the things that we reinvented ourselves around, uh, based on a tip from a good friend who's a pretty famous hedge fund manager, um, he recommended we look at the content creation business that feeds into Wall Street and to see whether or not our business expertise, including branding and sales development and, um, marketing might not be useful to people who do that for a living. Um, and that led to a creation of an entirely vertical for our business. And uh, we help many people in the space and we, we learn the space and many of our clients encouraged us to do it ourselves. Um, you know, um, the old saying is those who can do and those who can't teach. And our clients felt that we were teachers who could do. And so we, um, we planned the Thunberg brand. It's actually been about 11 months since we started. Uh, we launched in May of last year. Um, we're uh, approaching 40,000 emails on the Substack and I think almost 60,000 followers on Twitter. Twitter growth has been pretty remarkable, especially this month, but mostly, um, to answer your question, I would say it is, it is, it is first of all, it is my personal passion. Um, uh, and second of all, I have a very strong team, um, supporting me in the pursuit of that passion. It's, it's difficult to put as much time and effort into something unless you love it. And I personally love writing these pieces. They don't feel like work. Um, when we started, I, I hesitated it and wondered whether to be, you know, we would run out of things to write about and we're approaching piece 100 here and, uh, still going strong. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's been really amazing. Uh, we've been free for, um, from the onset, but we're, we're converting to pay next month. And that's the sort of, uh, next big phase for us in our journey is to, uh, create this into an actual business, um, that is, is becomes hopefully big enough that it's the only thing we do. Yeah, I'm surprised it's taking you so long to convert to paid. I I, uh, I look forward to that. I'll definitely be a subscriber. I'm sure many people I know will be as well. I appreciate that. Um, I wanted to start with the topic of, of general interest, which is crypto. Um, you had a very popular piece recently called Dollars X Machina, and you um, <clears throat> you talk about basically the crypto macro macro economy and you don't you don't necessarily take a an in stance on it but but you come down quite pessimistic on the industry are are you able to overview that piece yeah sure we um, so we wrote a piece called dollars x machina as you referenced and uh, in that piece we we began by telling the story of our own personal investment in crypto all the way back in 
2016, we had made an equity investment in a startup that was working in the crypto space. And um, we didn't really know anything about crypto back then. And I would suggest um, people, many in our demographic didn't. Um, but that investment, uh, which we watched um, soar from a nominal investment, I, I believe we took the minimum allocation in the seed round and it soared to, um, I think as we described it in a piece, several multiples of our net worth, uh, only to basically grind to a halt and, and ultimately zero out. Um, and while we were sort of investigating the crypto universe as a consequence of this dabbling of an investment that we had made, um, we sort of made this mental model of drawing a circle around the crypto universe. And then we tried to follow the fiat. So what? how does currency go in? And then how does currency come out? And what's going on inside of the crypto universe that sort of increases the net amount of currency that investors could take out. And, and we came to the conclusion that, you know, if you ever wanted to take out your money, um, essentially it was, is, is the word we use is a Ponzi scheme. Um, and, and we have not yet found a, a articulate rebuttal to that mental model. And uh, the piece went on to describe how some of the big names in the space have created hard pipes of fiat obligations out of the crypto universe such as Michael Saylor at MicroStrategy, which we had written about in a previous piece called um, The Drunken Sailor. Um, but I would say, you know, we are not um, strident in our writings um, about our negativity towards the crypto space, uh, but we are certainly no coiners. I, nobody on the Doomberg team has ever purchased a cryptocurrency. We don't have a wallet. It's just not a space that we understand enough to participate in. And uh, the core of that piece was just sort of presenting our follow the fiat model and, and you know, provocatively describing the sort of crypto universe uh, as a circle, as a, as a bit of a Ponzi scheme, where it's impossible that more fiat could be created inside than is put in. And then when you subtract out sort of theft and hacks and um, and the need for mining, for example, with Bitcoin, that, you know, th that creates real fiat obligations. You can't yet pay for your electricity in, in Bitcoin. And so there's this sort of, you always need fresh investors coming in in order for old investors to cash out, which is sort of the classic definition of a of a Ponzi. And so that was the piece that we wrote. The take is essentially that uh, if you invest in a quality company, there's a productive function where they're transforming inputs to outputs. And in the case of crypto, you're making the argument that the production function is, is sort of negative where <clears throat> the inputs are exceeding the outputs because of the, the deadweight loss of, of mining. And among others, uh, theft is a big part of the you know theft and fraud and scams and rug pulls is a huge drag on the fiat floating around in the crypto universe. But our main thesis in writing the pieces, pieces that we've written about crypto, and we kind of stayed away from crypto because it's kind of intellectually too easy of a growth hack to just write about crypto and take a uh, polarizing stance and um, you know get one of the two camps to come and row the boat for you. So um, we, we participate in the crypto debate, but we're, no, we're nowhere near what we would consider thought leaders. Um, but at its core, our main thesis is um, the US government uh, is corrupt and the US government has uh, power over the populace. And one of the main means by which it expresses that power is through control of the dollar. And um, you know the, uh, the banking system, anti-money laundering, know your customer. These are significant uh, levers of power for a basically corrupt regime, and they will strike back. And they're not just going to let the crypto universe undercut them. 
Um, and uh, our belief is, uh, you know, we wrote a piece called uh, the crackdown, the SEC crackdown on DeFi's uh, is coming. Um, they will crack down on this. You're seeing it already. I believe, for example, that um, the headline that crossed yesterday that Russia would allow friendly customers, fr- friendly countries to pay for oil and Bitcoin um, is going to be used by the U.S. authorities to make a severe crackdown on the entire space. And our main point in writing these pieces is just sort of warn our readers who would probably be majority no-coiners and um, perhaps interested in speculating that at least be mindful that um, there are countermeasures that are almost undoubtedly going to be deployed. And um, I wouldn't underestimate the power of the U.S. government or its desire to control the money supply. I would uh, largely agree with you there. It's a competing power structure. Tether is one of the instruments that sort of connects fiat with crypto. And every once in a while, controversy will heat up there and then it will die down. And uh, it usually dies down because quite reasonable individuals like, say, Sam Bankman-Fried will come and say, look, the reality is that in the market, people who actually have something at stake and are trading these things value it at close to a dollar. And it's been that way for a long time. And so that's, that's just the way it is. It's, it, it is true that the holdings are largely unknown, but by the same token, the most knowledgeable individuals are, are willing to take it at close to face value at close, close to a dollar. How, how do you view the, uh, the tether debates? I, I come down pretty significantly on the side of uh, Tether is a provable fraud. And um, I think I sort of view it as a test of people's intentions, whether they can recognize what Tether is. And um, I won't sort of get into too many of the specifics, but it is um, inconceivable that Tether has anywhere near the reserves it claims. And um, my belief, personal belief, and the belief of many others and um, that I respect in the field is that it's a largely a counterfeiting operation that is propping up the price of Bitcoin. Um, and that um, you know, the people involved and who are the most intimate with it, if they can't see that or they refuse to see that or they know it and they say otherwise in public, then that's on them and their legacy and their reputation for history to judge when this all unfolds. But um, you an entity that has been barred from doing business in the state of New York um, because of a settlement with the attorney general of the state of New York um, that claims to have some $82 billion in reserves, but uh, has had a long history of struggling to find banking. Um, $82 billion is a lot of money. And um, the tether situation is sort of the, the, um, the Rosetta Stone through which we view all participants in the crypto space. Um, not sure if that was the answer you were looking for, but it's the honest one. It's the one we believe, and it's it's the one that uh, that we think in the next several months. And in fact, um, back to my previous answer, if the U.S. government is looking to use the Russian headline as cover, we think the mechanism by which they will begin the crackdown on Bitcoin will be through the tether fraud. That's that's an interesting take. So so tether, in your view, is sort of a a central bank, a de facto central bank of crypto that uh, sort of prints tether from thin air to st- stabilize the market. Uh, uh, here, let's let's do this. Follow the fiat model. Um, wasn't 
and if this is the angle that you want to go down, I'm happy to do it. Um, so imagine Brandon deposits fiat in a exchange overseas and, um, I don't know, let's say $10,000 and uh, they credit you with 10,000 tethers so that now you can go and trade. Um, that fiat is deposited on the exchange. Um, the next step is they induce you to trade with leverage. Um, so there's massive amounts of leverage, especially in sort of under-regulated exchanges. And um, let's just assume you're going to trade the price of Bitcoin with 10 to 1 leverage. Um, those exchanges know your positions, and let's say some of them are not super ethical and they have a, a sketchy track record of participating in Ponzi's. Um, and uh, knowing that they have a certain book of business that's loaded long or short, they they allow the people who are allowed to basically print tether to swing the market around and trigger stop losses um, and liquidations and cascading liquidations and waterfalls. Um, and so now you you are 10 to 1 levered. Um, the price of Bitcoin or pick your favorite crypto moves 10% again. So you're wiped out um, and you think that you just lost your $10,000 in fiat because of a bad trade. Um, but in reality, that fiat has just been siphoned off by people who are doing wash trading and and counterfeit printing of the currency that is the underlying trading vehicle. And, and I think there are many, many, many victims of, of this. I think, I don't think it's actually arguable. I think it's pretty plainly evident that this is the nature of the scheme. Um, you see, and then of course, you know, um, all you need is to arbitrage across multiple exchanges to uh, give the perception in the U S that uh, Bitcoin price is liquid and you can easily move fiat in and out. And, and I, I know that you can do that in the U S but our belief is that, you know, most of the, if 70% of the volume is traded in tether and tether is basically you know, um, not allowed to operate in the U.S., even though they probably do. Um, then, of course, this this is all just driven by multi-exchange arbitrage. Uh, but hey, that's just our belief, and we're no coiners. And um, many people have written this. This is sort of a, a hotly debated uh, topic, and I suspect that it is almost impossible to convert one person from one camp to the other. Uh, that people have just sort of settled on it. Um, they see what they want to see, and so the the sort of the return on effort in the debate is pretty minimal in our opinion. Yes, I agree with you. And I like your take that talking crypto is a shortcut in financial commentary because it is true that it kicks up engagement a good bit. And I think honestly, it's it's corrupted economic and financial commentary a lot because I think people who are in the business of selling newsletters or selling subscriptions of any kind, there's just such an incentive to, to talk about crypto because it pushes their numbers. And moreover, there's such an incentive to be in the long-term bull camp that it, it can corrupt their analysis quite a bit. Yeah. And I get that. And also I do think many of them are true believers. Um, and I, and again, I, one of the reasons that we, we don't write a lot about crypto is because, um, you know, fighting a cult is a um, it's negative sum return in your personal life. And it's just, there are other people who, and by the way, like, as I said at the beginning, like the authorities are going to crack down on it. We're not huge fans of. And so we're kind of like neutral in the fight. We sympathize with the desire to create anonymous money. We sympathize with the desire to be able to transact in private. We sympathize with the desire to 
have a means of uh, creating, storing, and transacting in wealth that is out of the reach of tax authorities or uh, corrupt government officials. For example, we wrote a, um, a couple of pieces on what Justin Trudeau has been doing up in Canada and freezing the bank accounts of protesters. And then we wrote a follow-up piece um, called What Canada Means for Crypto, um, where we also basically made the point that um, through the same lens that we analyze crypto, one must also analyze gold. And we have a lot of gold buggers uh, amongst our readers. It probably wasn't the best for our quote, you know, the click aspects of our business to put that out there, but it's what we believed. Um, and it's what we believe Justin Trudeau's behavior in Canada showed, which is unless you can buy things that you need to live, it's not money. And, and but through that lens, crypto is not money and neither is gold. Um, they are speculation vehicles. They are um, interesting technologies, <clears throat> but they aren't money. Um, and you know, gold is a store of value, but it fails the medium of exchange test for money. And uh, if you were a trucker in Canada whose bank accounts were frozen, your American gold coins could be bartered. But if you, you've been reduced to barter, that's the exception that proves the rule. Um, you literally have no economic freedom and the amount of Bitcoin you have in your cold storage wallet or the amount of gold coins you have in your safe weren't going to help you when you needed it the most. You have developed a, a personal investing strategy, which is quite idiosyncratic. You've described it in another podcast as earn in fiat, save in real, and invest in businesses that you can control or that we can control as in the Bloomberg, as in the Doomberg team. Um, could you uh, explain this philosophy a bit? One of the things that we have learned through our studies and in our business and um, through writing the Doomberg pieces is that it's, it's actually quite difficult to trade stocks for uh, a living and, and do well at it. The vast majority of people who day trade, for example, are, are money losers. And um, given the, the stacked house dynamics that we just described for crypto, that would make no sense either. In our opinion, um, the people who are making the most amount of money in crypto are the people who are either the earliest to Bitcoin and, and um, you know, when Bitcoin was was literally worthless, had accumulated some and are sitting on a valuable stack today. Great. Congratulations. Um, and if I were in that position, I would be actively dripping out as much fiat out of the system as I could. Um, so if you, if you can't really um, day trade for a living or beat the markets, because the market is corrupt, um, your alternative is to invest in, um, in passive vehicles like you know, the S&P 500 index fund, and that's fine. Um, but for us, we have found, um, given our sort of unique consulting firm and our, our industry experience and our managerial abilities, that the very best way for us to, to, have a, to create alpha in, our investing, uh, in the investing portion of our net worth is through investing in private companies where we can affect the outcome. I, I would not use the word control. Um, because other than our firm, we, we, we don't have controlling stakes in private companies, but we do see private company deal flow. And we do have a pretty good understanding of, of the private markets, venture capital and private equity. Um, key members of our firm come from those industries. And uh, so our philosophy is we should always be earning in fiat. Fiat is money. Um, fiat might be a Ponzi, um, but fiat is money. I can go to the grocery store today and I could buy a bottle of wine and some meat and some bread and make a sandwich and have a glass of wine and pay for it in fiat. And so we must earn in fiat. We measure our business in fiat. We consolidate our books in fiat and we report 
our earnings uh, to the IRS and fiat, and we try our best to be law-abiding within the regime and to change it from within to minimize the corruption that we see, uh, which is one of the themes of Bloomberg. Um, we save in real assets because you can't get an interest rate uh, at the bank today. Um, and so, you know, uh, when we look at the savings portion of our net worth, we view that as the things we'll hand down to our children that will have the same or slightly better purchasing power than it does today. So if I, if I go and buy, you know, pick your favorite, a 20 American Gold Eagles for $40,000, that's roughly the price of a car today, if you could get one before, you know, there were no cars on the lots. Um, we would view that stack of American Gold Eagles as we are passing down to our children the purchasing power of a nice vehicle with that stack of gold coins. Um, and then the third element is investing privately where we can affect the outcome using our skills, our network, and our ability to help the managers who have the, the, you know, the, the agency to go and create value in the market uh, and to help them do so. And um, our private investments, of course, in a way are a bit of a hedge against inflation because if you, if you select those private investments correctly and they produce things that customers will need regardless of all scenarios, um, and you could help create alpha in, in sort of a sweat alpha, as we would call it, a sweat equity alpha, um, then that works for us. And that's just our mechanism. It doesn't work for everybody. Many people have done well in the markets. We, we can't bring ourselves to invest in things that we know are overvalued on the hope that somebody will be uh, foolish enough to buy it from us at a higher price in the future. And so for our mental model and the way it works for us, this is the, the three prisms that we've chosen to do. And you've described yourself in another podcast as short-term pessimist, long-term optimist. Uh, you're a long-term optimist based on history and also technological progress. And you're a short-term pessimist uh, because of the trajectory of some of our bigger institutions and also because of uh, natural resource constraints, which is something you've written quite about quite a bit about. I'm wondering if you could <laughs> um, introduce the topic of natural resource constraints and maybe uh, supply curve generated inflation and perhaps uh, preview your upcoming piece, Farmers on the Brink. We are indeed um, short-term pessimists. We, we believe that in the Western world in particular, we have elevated to political leadership, a series of people that are shockingly uneducated in the things that matter and ethically loose. Um, and that the leaders um, in charge of, of, our, of the nations that we would consider sort of the Western world, uh, that composition matters and will manifest itself in poorer outcomes than would otherwise have been if we had better leaders. Part of that is because we have a political system that um, distills such people because nobody with proper skill and good ethics wants to be in politics anymore just because of the gauntlet of um, personal destruction that you have to run to get to the other side and be a political leader. And so you have this sort of what we would call still bottoms effect, you know, all of the, the decent and, and, and intelligent and practical leaders go on to do better, more lucrative things and stay out of public policy. <clears throat> That's that's um, that's shame. That's a shame, uh, and that will rear itself in the ways in which we're seeing it unfold today. But long term, yeah, we're quite bullish on the human spirit and on um, the desire for people to be free and to create value and to 
um, lift themselves out of poverty and to protect the well-being of their family. And as a consequence of that, um, we, if, we if we can get through this series of crises without sort of zeroing out, um, then the rebirth is going to be incredibly bullish. Um, and ultimately, one of the big themes of the Doomberg pieces is this focus on the laws of physics. Um, the human endeavor is a constant, unrelenting struggle against the forces of entropy. We need energy to impose order on our local environment. Every human would like a higher standard of living. And um, your standard of living is nothing more than the amount of order you can impose on your local environment. You know, right angles don't appear in nature spontaneously. Um, you're the, the, the residence that you're sitting in now, as we are having this discussion is an enormous amount of stored potential energy. A lot of work that came before you, um, energy prices were paid to create this amazing environment that allows you to control your temperature and the humidity and the pleasure with which you can sort of get up in the morning and go to bed at night and live a happy, fulfilled life. Um, all humans want more, all humans will work hard to get more and, and, ultimately um, will demand a political environment which allows them to flourish. And so the only real issue is the path function from here to there and whether we do it intelligently or whether we make all the mistakes that we know we're making and have to fully suffer the consequences before we wise up and get a political class that is educated in physics, that is human first, and uh, that is practical in their leadership and inspirational in their style. And we have a, a shocking absence of all of that, we believe in, in the, uh, the political culture today. And this is a bipartisan condemnation. Uh, it's not like uh, we're team players and only pointing out the flaws of one side. Um, there is no good um, choice for right-minded people today in politics. Uh, we think it is basically a uni-party system. Um, and uh, unfortunately, we're just going to have to suffer a lot before, before the people rise up and re retake control over the politics of the nation. You focus quite a bit on the supply curve and supply curve generated inflation. I think it's fair to say that you think inflation is here to stay for a while because of what's going on with the supply curve. Is that is that a reasonable gener generalization? It is, although ultimately when the rubber band is stretched too far, the snapback will be a, you know, a collapse in the economy. Um, we are again, short-term pessimistic because of that. Um, the, again, going back to the laws of physics, if you constrain supply of the primary energy sources in the economy, or you have uh, very poor geopolitical decisions in the same context like Europe has by um, shutting down its own capacity to produce energy and outsourcing its energy needs to a dictator who doesn't like us, um, you know, people have misconstrued our pointing out that Europe's energy policy is insane as somehow some kind of a support for Vladimir Putin is quite the opposite. The, the, the insane nature of it is that they are relying on him for their, for their natural gas, for example, and shutting down their own nuclear power plants in Germany uh, and increasing the dependency on uh, a dictator who doesn't like us. And so we, we would say there's no chance that Vladimir Putin would have moved on Ukraine if he didn't believe he held all the energy cards over Western Europe, and he does, and we gave him those cards. And so shame on us for doing it. Um, so ultimately, yes, the, both the nature of the domestic production and also the nature of the people you are outsourcing it to matter. And they matter a lot. And, and the piece we're going to drop 
um, tomorrow. We're recording this on Friday. We're going to publish it. Saturday is, is a piece called Farmers on the Brink. We've spent the past couple of weeks um, touring the U.S. Midwest and reaching out to our contacts in the agricultural sector, and, and we have many, to get a full assessment of just how precarious the global food supply chain is and just what a dark period we might be heading into. And, and look, we take no pleasure in being right. We, we close that piece by saying that um, predicting global famine is, 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 the, is one of the times where we, um, we've never been more certain in our prediction and, and more desirous that it be wrong. Uh, but we need to highlight that that these decisions have consequences and the consequences are real. And the people who will feel them the most are the ones who can afford it the least. It's going to be the poor countries who get crushed. And it's going to be the um, poorest among us in the Western world who have the hardest time getting through this crisis. And if you have any empathy at all, it's probably time to take a step back and to assess the decisions that put us here. This this There's no excuse for the Western world to be uh, in the position it's in. We have enormous abundance in energy. We have enormous abundance in our capacity to produce a standard of living for everybody. And yet somehow we've, we've, we find ourselves in the position where we are at the whim of a dictator who doesn't like us. That's not the dictator's fault. That's our fault. Farmers on the brink. Are you, are you able to say, uh, which areas of the commodity space that is going to focus on most? You bet. Yeah, happy to. Um, it'll, it's publishing tomorrow. It's free. Everybody could read it. Um, so we start with fertilizer, which has mooned, trades like a, a crypto scam coin. Um, fertilizer is an absolutely critical input into farming. And uh, not only is the price of fertilizer skyrocketing, um, but also the availability is shrinking, which the two often go hand in hand. And we're talking about um, nitrogen, um, potassium, uh, and phosphorus, and all three of those are critical and needed, and all three of them are in short supply, and um, uh, the price have doubled or tripled or quadrupled um, versus last year. And so, you know, ammonia is basically derived from natural gas, and the price of natural gas in Europe and Asia has skyrocketed. Um, potassium is is um, is mined, and uh, potash is uh, you know the, the Belarus and Russia are the number number three and two suppliers of potash globally. Um, and so with the war in Ukraine, that has been turned off and people have yet to really wrap their brains around just what a big deal that is. Um, and so, uh, and, you know, with, um, with phosphorus, you know, China is the number one exporter in the world. And last fall in a move that we highlighted in a piece called Starvation Diet, where we predicted famine for the first time, um, China cut off exports of potash mysteriously in late September, almost as though they knew what was coming in the Russia-Ukraine war and were preparing their domestic uh, agricultural sector for it. Um, and so from fertilizer, uh, we moved to diesel. You know, those tractors on the farms aren't going to power themselves. And there's a massive diesel shortage uh, and a diesel crisis that is out uh, in the middle of uh, unfolding right now, driven again by natural gas in Europe. Uh, a really great Bloomberg reporter, Javier Blas, uh, wrote a fantastic piece that we quote in ours, um, showing how natural gas is critical to the refinement of oil into diesel and European refineries couldn't afford it anymore. And so they stopped producing diesel at the rates that they were. And Europe is importing its diesel and its um, semi-processed oil precursor from Russia. And so now with the war in Ukraine, we're seeing a diesel crisis and that diesel crisis is going to result in significant cost increases and uh, supply challenges to farmers all over the world. Uh, nobody will be spared. Um, 
you know, from there, we went into herbicides. Uh, the leading herbicide in the world is a, is a very controversial molecule called gly glyphosate, um, known better by its retail brand um, Roundup. Glyphosate, when you look at the molecular structure, is a basically an elegant and uh, chemically modified version of a fertilizer. It's got uh, it's derived from ammonia and, and, and phosphorus. And so its price has mooned. It's gone up four or five X. Its, its availability has uh, waned. Uh, there's a global glyphosate shortage, and that is causing a scramble for substitutes, which might not work as well. Um, herbicides and fungicides in particular, uh, because of the way in which modern agriculture works, are a pretty unique vulnerability. Um, so just let's just take Roundup or, or glyphosate. Um, Monsanto, who's now owned by Bayer, um, they sell genetically modified seeds where the, let's say the corn uh, that you plant um, is very resistant to glyphosate. And so you can use it to remove all of the weeds um, and use it sort of with abundance and not worry about damaging the crop itself. Well, that's a strength when the herbicide is abundantly available and it's a critical weakness when it's not. And as one of the experts that we interviewed in preparing for this piece told us, um, it only takes one year of negligence to create many years of damage to a field uh, if, if you let these weeds get out of control. From uh, herbicides, we move into machinery, tractors themselves. You know, the chip shortage that has crushed the automotive industry has done the same to farming equipment. And we tell the story of a um, series of farmers venting their frustration at a Republican uh, meeting in Iowa. And, uh, you know, the one farmer tells the story of, of, of missing a $40 emission sensor and uh, therefore his $250,000 tractor can't be operated. Um, if the machines can't work or can't be replaced or can't be repaired, um, you hope that maybe the labor could make up for it, but there's a labor crisis um, in the US in particular, but also around the world. And the, um, the number of open positions versus qualified people willing to take that job has been skyrocketing across all sectors. And agriculture is particularly hard hit in the US, not the least of which because that labor is physically intense and many people don't want to do it. And also much of that labor, which is kind of a dirty little secret of farming has been through uh, immigrant um, laborers um, who are on temporary work visas and the vaccine mandates has have thrown a wrench into uh, immigration. And then the, we close the piece with a prediction of a potential future crisis, which we we um, we leverage from a really great account, Chai Girl on Twitter, uh, which is an upcoming propane um, shortage. And, and propane is a really big deal in farming because it is used in the grain drying process. And if you can't dry your crops, they spoil faster. And some 80% of U.S. crops are dried using um, propane because natural gas is not widely available in rural communities, which is where you find most of the farms. And so uh, it's not the most uplifting piece we've ever written, but it's one of the most important. Um, and um, we wanted to get it out there. We have you know, large readership, as you said, and, and hopefully some policymakers and some influencers will see that piece and begin to think about you know, what are the best course of action we need to do to sort of begin to reverse some of that. Because if we don't, um, there's going to be a lot of starving people around the world. And that's a really deep tragedy. And when you, when you look at uh, markets, ha they have to some extent anticipated this crisis, right? Like the, the price of food commodities and so forth have skyrocketed. All the charts that we show in the piece, they might as well all be the same chart. <laughs> you know, they're all going vertical at the same time. So the price of diesel in Europe or the price of um, fertilizer, the price of glyphosate in China. This is a global phenomenon. These are, you know, 
ultimately the products like wheat and corn and soy and oils, they're all globally traded commodities. And um, the price of many of those are just beginning to go vertical. But we view our job at Doomberg is to sort of be ahead of the news flow. Um, we were calling for, you know, the consequences of, of the phosphate. Um, we wrote the piece about the phosphate uh, export ban in China all the way back on October 10th. Um, and here we are in, in March of 2022. And we're just now beginning to see the full depth of the consequences of that move. Um, and so we are sounding the alarm on a global famine. And um, as I said earlier, we've, we've never wanted to be more wrong in our lives. I can't wait to uh, read that piece. Um, you wrote a piece recently called Nickel in Front of a Steamroller, which it was also in the commodity space. And I'm wondering if you have a view on sort of the connection of the paper to the real, right? You have this phenomena that the the prices of uh, commodities is largely quoted in the uh, futures market prices, which are sort of a paper price. But at the end of the day, um, there should be connection with the physical and in nickel that kind of broke down a bit. Um, and uh, I'm wondering if you have a view there, if, if you take the big picture view, it was kind of funny that uh, the short squeeze phenomena happened during the COVID era in stuff like uh, bad, bad companies and, and bad stocks, right? It's much more natural for there to be a short squeeze in something real, like a physical commodity where you're saying, okay, if you're going to sell these things to me in paper, then I'm going to make you deliver them in the physical. Um, do you, do you have uh, big picture views of the, the connection to the paper, to the physical? The core of the piece that you referenced, which we published, uh, I think 10 or 12 days ago, um, nickel in front of a steamroller is that the LME is dead as an entity. The LME is over. Um, the outgoing thumbnail for that piece was a rest in peace LME. Um, Either a physical exchange uh, promotes accurate price discovery uh, and allows for uh, market participants to set a true price for a commodity, or it doesn't. And the LME doesn't. Um, it no longer does. It's the second time it has broken that trust in the past year. The first time was in the copper market on a much smaller scale. But the story we tell of uh, in Nichols in front of a steamroller is uh, you know, a very large and influential Chinese tycoon got very short nickel at a very bad time. And ultimately, the exchange and the banks who allowed him to take this enormous risk are doing their best to try to bail him out. It remains to be seen whether uh, they will succeed. But ultimately, if you reduce it down to how the default waterfall was supposed to work at the LME, the LME is insolvent. And everybody knows it. All the key traders know it. You're going to see an exodus of volume and money off of those exchanges. And if at the highest level, the purpose of a physical exchange is to... Um, support efficiency and price discovery. And over the long term, those efforts should result in a lower price than would have been otherwise and a more orderly market that would have been otherwise. Um, the fall of the key exchanges like the LME, uh, because it is literally a walking dead entity in our opinion, um, the fall of those exchanges um, ultimately will, will um, result in the opposite. We will have higher prices than would have been and less orderly markets than would have been and more individual physical to physical trades 
Um, and something very similar sort of in the platinum palladium space and these prices exploded after that happened. And so, you know, I, we wrote a piece many, many months ago about the silver market and the, and the attempts of the Wall Street bets crowd to squeeze silver. Um, if they succeed, they won't get their money. That's what these exchanges have proven. They will shut it down, change the rules, um, and they will not allow retail investors, much in the same way that Robinhood did with, with uh, GME and AMC. And look, we've written very skeptically about AMC's management, but we do believe wholeheartedly that Robinhood was uh, insolvent and it turned off the buy button on AMC and GME because if they hadn't, they'd be out of business. And so they stole from retail to protect themselves. And the same thing happened with the LME. And once you know that those are the rules, you have to adapt to them. Um, so we see a future of higher prices for commodities than would have been otherwise. That's different than saying they will be higher than they are today. Um, and we see a future of a less efficient market with wider bid-ask spreads, where insiders with access to physical have much more market knowledge and advantage over retail investors. And um, the same thing will transpire in the gold market because of our, our attempts to sanction Russian gold. Um, either gold is a fungible commodity that is freely traded and liquid, or it isn't. Um, and the consequences of it not being so are huge. And so the nickel is sort of a canary in the coal mine for what we see as a breakdown of physical exchanges and clearing houses across the market. Silver was always an odd one to target for a squeeze as well, because if there is any metal that is quite plentiful, it's, it's silver as it comes as a byproduct of so many others. It, it was, it was always an odd target um in the in the nickel case um it it was strange because the person being squeezed was uh a producer right like they were that that was that was odd and um you think of a commodity market a futures market as connecting hedgers and speculators but you would you still think most of the time that the, that the hedgers, the commodity producers, basically on the whole want the commodity price going up. Yeah, so this is a, a section of the farming piece that we left on the cutting room floor because it had gotten too long, but um, that happens all the time. So if you're a farmer, let's say, or a nickel miner, and you wanna hedge your forward production, well, you have to pledge margin. And uh, ultimately you are going short financially the thing that you're buying and most times that works, except when it doesn't. And actually the way it doesn't is when it goes against you and you have to keep pledging more margin. And then if you can't pledge more margin, you get liquidated in your position, but that happens all the time to mom and pop producers of farms, to you know small speculators or small mining companies. The exchange doesn't step in and save you when you've put yourself in a position where the market running against you causes you to not be able to meet your contractual obligations. A contract is a contract unless you're a Chinese billionaire tycoon and the LME has decided that you are systemic. And by the way, I don't blame the Chinese billionaire tycoon. I blame the banks and the LME for allowing this person to take systemic risk. Like where are the safeguards? Where are the regulators? Um, the, The reason why the LME is unwinding the trades and we'll see if they're ultimately successful. I have a hunch that they won't be. Um, is because this person is systemic. If it was Brandon and Doomberg, they would have rolled us and we would have been liquidated and we would be SOL um, because the rules apply to us. But if the rules don't apply to everybody, then ultimately they apply to nobody. And that's why we predict the end of these exchanges because and but it's their own fault. They allowed a speculator 
to get systemic. And then instead of confessing, recapitalizing, um, they intervened and changed the rules. And so think of all of the poor hedgers um, who was innocently, as you described, trying to secure a decent price for their future production and then got caught in a squeeze like this and ultimately were financially ruined. Well, that, you know, the, the, the LME would say to them, too bad. But the LME didn't say too bad to this Chinese billionaire tycoon uh, because they couldn't. And so ultimately, that's why we think it's the death of the LME. Well, on the continuum between hedger and speculator, he, he was uh, a, a bit far away from full on hedger because what he had was not what could be delivered against the contract. And so he was a, ultimately a systemic risk to the exchange and the exchange and the banks who enabled him um, bear the responsibility for it. And we've seen time and time again with GameStop and AMC or with Copper or here now with Nickel that the big banks and the exchanges will not let you win. And so um, it is what it is. We view that sort of as an axiom. And so any trade that is contingent upon squeezing something, um, it's just not going to work. Um, you have better uses for your money. Just reason number 50 that we invest privately where we can have some impact on the outcome. Because if your thesis is that you're going to, you know, for example, create a run on uh, gold physical redemptions, uh, we put a tweet out the other day, which, which was kind of cryptic that some people got, but we said, we, we suspect that the most interesting chart in the world would be the ratio of uh, Fizz, uh, P-H-Y-S divided by GLD. Um, and I can explain that tweet because, you know, Fizz is the Sprott Physical Gold Trust in Canada, and they claim to have one-to-one gold backing. And uh, GLD, of course, is paper gold, and they participate in the futures market to recreate the synthetic price of gold. Um, and if Vladimir Putin decides to, um, to back the ruble with gold, which is sort of a backdoor way of pricing oil and gold, um, we could see uh, a lot of physical redemptions uh, in, the, in the exchanges. And if we do see that, uh, we suspect we'll see the same thing that happened in nickel. They'll change the rules. They'll stop trading. They'll you know, um, use the cover of uh, Putin's aggression in Ukraine to, to uh, suppress the price of gold, let's imagine. Well, the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust should still trade in those scenarios. And how it trades when you know, the exchange-linked products um, are frozen uh, will be very interesting to see. And in fact, what we saw with nickel is very analogous. The, the Shanghai market for nickel kept trading. It was only the LME that stopped. And you knew where the LME was going to ultimately reopen. Um, it was going to converge to the price where it was trading in Shanghai, which was around 38,000. And it did. Um, all those limit down days were basically just a slow roll to get the price uh, between the two exchanges to arbitrage again, back to our comments about crypto earlier. You know, these exchanges can and are arbitraged by powerful people with lots of money. Um, and so we think the ratio of, of FIS divided by GLD is a chart that may not turn out to be the most interesting chart in the world, but if it does, we're certainly going to take credit for that tweet. Yeah, I have to consult with the broker on what the margin requirement for that particular one is. Yeah, you would think it would be quite low. Um, so exchange, if if you were taking the view that, okay, LME will survive and do well and they just made a power play here right you can sort of in a way understand why they would make this power play because for an exchange short squeezes are very bad for business those are those are the only times when prices move in in, in insanely quickly um and basically uh 
evaporate margins and cause accounts to go negative equity and cause the exchange to be on the hook. So if they can, if they can somehow successfully make that power play um, and people keep trading, like it's good for the exchange, right? Because they've, they've sort of told the market that using our power, we're going to eliminate the one scenario that's really bad for us, which is prices going straight up and a bunch of people going negative equity and us being on the hook. That's that's a favorable interpretation, and and I freely admit that that's a plausible one. It's not the one that we hold. Um, we think that if the rules are uncertain, then fewer people will play, and if fewer people play, then what's the point of the exchange? Um, so the the ultimate test will be the open interest across these metals at the LME over time, um, and you know the LME serves a function, but it's not like the mining sector will stop operating if the exchanges are no longer operational. You know, for the vast majority of um, uh, of commodity business, which is the field that we come from, um, they might use those exchanges as a reference point, but it's still transactions between companies. If I'm a consumer of nickel, I'm developing relationships with the miners of nickel. I like the, the a, a very small percentage of the actual transactions occur on the exchanges. The exchanges are supposed to be supply of last resort. And uh, the test that is the real price is supposed to be that you can redeem. Uh, but you know, uh, a meat packer is buying cattle from farmers. They might be referencing, you know, a beef product traded on a futures market. But in reality, the um, the accounts, you know, the, the 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 invoices aren't going to the exchanges. They're going, the mine is sending the invoice to the smelter. Um, and so that's the way the real economy works. The point of the exchanges is to reduce friction and increase in efficiency in the real economy. The death of the exchanges or the need to recreate them with better and, and stricter rules um, won't necessarily change the underlying economics of the real economy. It'll just make it occur with higher friction and less efficiency. Do you think that the CME and the LME are going to have similar trajectories, or do you think that the CME through maybe more regulation and lower position limits, higher margin requirements is able to avoid some of the, the difficulties. There is a, a window of opportunity for somebody to take over the bulk of the volume trading in metals from the LME. Who that is and how they do it remains to be seen. Um, but, you know, if Comex can do it, great. Um, or maybe somebody buys the LME with new management and new rules and they convince the market that they're going to be far more trustworthy than the current owners. Um, if the rules had been followed, um, I think things would have turned out differently. The core issue here is the rules weren't followed. And so if the rules don't mean anything, then why would they mean anything in the future? It seems like many lawsuits will come from this. You have uh, uh, Cliff Asnes is, has some fiery tweets about how yeah. somehow they were involved and might have well, lawsuits, but we will see. The, the, the three fundamental truisms of life are death taxes and lawyers will make money. I, I'm wondering if you can preview some, some upcoming posts. We have Farmers on the Brink coming Saturday. Um, your readers might be interested in, in what the, the future holds. Um, one, one area that you've seemed to stay away from that someone who is going by Doomberg might be expected to, to wait in is uh fed fed policy. Um, haven't written so much about that. I'm, I'm wondering uh, where, where will the next month or two t take Doomberg? 
So um, we do actually write our pieces sequentially. It's not like we have a, a pipeline of pieces that we that we're working on. Now, the ideas sort of come to us, and then we turn them around in three to four days, and and we publish about every four to five days, um, uh, on average. Sometimes quicker, depending on the news flow. We have written a few pieces about the Fed just to get that question out of the way. They're just far better people to opine on it than us, and so we leave it to them. Uh, it's a very complicated, nuanced topic that has um, a very much higher political input than economic. Um, we have occasionally written about it, but it's just, as you've mentioned, it's not our core strength. Um, the, the piece we're publishing tomorrow has been the, the subject of a lot of work on our part. Um, after that, we're, we are having a look at this ongoing debate, sort of the Luke Roman camp and the, the death of the US dollar as a reserve versus sort of the, the milkshake theory camp where because of its you know, liquidity and utility that the US dollar in a crisis will will um, become more prevalent, not less. There seems to be a lot of debate on Twitter about that. That's one thing we're researching. Uh, the big piece that we're writing actually for next week is when we announce our paywall and the product offering, and we're keeping our pieces free for the month of April, but then we're going to go mostly paid after that. And that's a really big deal for us. We've been working on this for more than a year. And so if I was to confess to you, the piece that has been swimming in my brain the most for the past week or two, once we got this farmer piece out, has been that piece. And how do we explain to our readers what we will be doing and why we're going behind the paywall and our motivations for it and 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 to try to convince as many of our readers to come with us to to enable this to be the true work of our life where this is you know the one and only thing we get to do every day and uh, we can sort of minimize the number of things we have to do uh, because doing Doomberg, being Doomberg, writing Doomberg, going on podcasts, creating Twitter content is the work of my life. It's it comes very natural to me. I love doing it. It, it I wake up with a smile every day that I get to do it. And if, if there's a way that we can stack the deck to make it, um, you know, a, as viable for us financially as the business of our, our life, um, then that, that piece is very, very important to me personally. And, and I feel the, the weight of the team and we want to get this right. And so that's the big piece that we're probably going to publish next week. I feel very confident that you're going to have success there. Um, you do a, a, monthly or so piece called the work of my life where you uh, highlight people that you think are enjoying what they do uh yeah. is that something that will likely continue well that's certainly the forum that we're going to use to announce the paywall um and so um at the end of march we usually publish those at the end of a month where we sort of have been very authentically sharing our metrics and other content creators that we are um modeling and we have the content creator picked out for this piece we have the arc of the story um, I just, just haven't written it yet, but that's the one that has been soaking up a lot of my, uh, of my, uh, my allocated brain power here. Um, and it's one that really I wa want to get right because we have such a really great audience and very engaged and we get, uh, I think our, our five pieces we've published in March this month have averaged over 90,000 views, which is really incredible. Um, and so to the extent that we can, um, earn, as many of those people's business as possible, we want to do that. Um, and, and we're our capitalists at core and many of our readers are. And so hopefully that your, your prediction that we will do well, it comes true, but you know, we're in the, I would, I would be lying if I didn't confess that we were in the, uh, the nervous doubt phase of this journey. You know, you, you pour your heart into something for a year and um, you, you allow yourself to dream a little bit that this is the thing you could do for the next 10 or 20 years. But until that actually happens, you, you sort of have a bit of a uh, bit of nervous doubt. And so uh, my one of the my editor uh, likes to say that pressure is a privilege um, and we're very privileged to be in a position to feel this pressure. 
because we created this from nothing and um and and hopefully you know the it does work out um maybe not to the full extent of our dreams but certainly uh, well enough that that we have achieved our objective which is to to make Doomberg the thing we do and i will refer listeners to your twitter at Doomberg t correct that's correct at Doomberg t uh you can think of the t as standing for team uh and then you can find all of our writing at doomberg.substack.com um, like I say, we publish between six and eight pieces a month, and um, we try to make every piece better than all the other pieces we've written. And that's our sort of our value commitment to our readers. And uh, like I say, it's been a real pleasure talking to you, Brandon, and uh, it's been, been a lot of fun. And um, you know, hopefully come back and do it again after we've launched. Yeah, if you don't mind, I'll take credit for some of your paid subscribers next week and uh, try to book you to come on again. Uh, thanks so much, Dunberg. Appreciate it.